You're about to listen to an Audible original. Immersive audio entertainment like you've never heard before. Discover comedies from some of your favorite stars. Plus more genres you love. All inside the Audible app. But for now, enjoy the ride. The following contains language that some may find offensive. For years, people going around saying, Black is beautiful. They took one look at your family and said, Hold everything. <laughs> He was the star of one of the most groundbreaking sitcoms of all time. When he showed up on the screen in Sanford and Son, it was just an instant classic. A TV legend who cleared a path for the next generation of Black entertainers. If it wasn't for Red Fox and Sanford and Son and the success of it, we wouldn't have had a lot of other shows. The definition of indecent, when it's in long and it's in hard and it's in deep, then it's indecent. <laughs> the king of the party records, and the dean of X-rated comedians. <laughs> He'd give it to you, like, just in the raw. It was just raw. Red Fox was the man. Red was very risque. It always seemed very adult to be listening to Red Fox. The toughest thing in the world to have to turn to your mate one night and say, you got to wash your ass. <laughs> A blue comedy pioneer who sold an estimated 20 million records. When people played albums, they played them until the albums turned from black to white vinyl and then went out and bought it again. A man who didn't just break down doors, he leveled the building. Red Fox became the first black business owner in Beverly Hills. He was a storyteller. He was also fearless. In this episode, we examine the life of an entertainer who rose from street corner singer to TV icon. Red Fox is the grandpa of comedy, white, black, it doesn't matter. Everybody loved Red Fox. I'm calling you ugly. I could stick your faces in dough and make some gorilla cookies. I'm JB Smooth. And this is Funny My Way, Red Fox. Ladies and gentlemen, international star and king of the party record, Mr. Red Fox. The king of the party record is born John Elroy Sanford in St. Louis, Missouri on December 9th, 1922. When he's four years old, his father Fred walks out on his family leaving his mother Mary to raise him and his older brother Fred Jr. on her own. Every day is a struggle to put food on the table. In search of better paying work, Mary moves to Chicago, leaving her children behind with their elderly grandmother. Even at my young age, I knew it wasn't right for a mother to be leaving the two boys. That's an actor reading from the biography Black and Blue, The Red Fox Story. Published by Applause. The seeds of resentment and abandonment were planted deep in my soul. Here's the book's author, Michael Seth Starr. Red never felt supported by his mother. He didn't like her. They didn't have the greatest relationship. Well, here he dropped a wallet containing his entire week's salary. And he asked me to make this announcement. Uh, he has a picture of his mother in that wallet with the money. And he wants ever who found the wallet to know that the picture of his mother don't mean nothing. Just bring that money back. Red's grandmother sends him and his brother to a black Catholic boarding school in Wisconsin. It's the first time Red recognizes his talent for making people laugh. Yeah, I found out I couldn't be Pope. I said, fuck him. I'm not going to sit in the back of heaven. After a few years, the boys return to St. Louis. But school isn't really Red's thing. See, I didn't go to college. I know I wasn't going to college when I didn't get into high school. They weren't teaching nothing but filth in high school. Little boy Blue, come blow your horn. You'll break your neck trying to blow your horn. You want your horn blown, you need a friend. At the age of 13, he leaves St. Louis for Chicago, supporting himself by playing on street corners in a washboard band. 
That's where I got the idea that I wanted to be really in serious show business was in Chicago. I ran away from home in 1939 to go to New York to be on Major Bowes Amateur Hour, and I did. I made it. Major Bowes Amateur Hour. It was the biggest talent show in the country, listened to by millions of people every week. Fred and his band, the Jump Swinging Six, play second to last. They may not get the win, but they do get exposure. And they capitalize on it by playing street corners and subways all over New York. They also start hanging out at Harlem Savoy Ballroom, watching jazz greats like Ella Fitzgerald and Charlie Parker. The Savoy was very important because I found such relief in dancing. And I danced pretty good. I would hustle all day long so I can get to the Savoy, meet some chicks, and hear all the best bands. December 7th, 1941, a day of infamy. But America's entrance into World War II breaks up the band. One member enlists, and another goes home to Chicago. It's not long before Red gets called up for the draft himself. I went to a draft board in Harlem. I'd eaten a half bar of octagon soap, which causes heart palpitations. Red may have dodged the draft, but he's struggling to make a living. He gets a job at Jimmy's Chicken Shack where he meets a man named Malcolm Little. As small-time criminals, Red and Malcolm try everything from dealing pot on the street corners to stealing suits from dry cleaners. Malcolm gives his friend the nickname Chicago Red. Not to be confused with himself, Detroit Red. Here, Fox discusses his friendship with the man the world will come to know as Malcolm X. You knew Malcolm, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I knew him quite well. I think I knew him better than anyone, you know, in his young days. How, how, how long did you know him? 18 years. We were friends and partners and whatever. What kind, what kind, of, what kind of business were you in? Oh, when you're in the ghetto and you have nothing else to do but try to succeed, you might do anything, which we tried some of all of it. I'll, I'll tell it because it's past statute limitation. <laughs> but we had to do some things just to survive, just to eat. Eventually, Malcolm drifts out of his life. And in 1945, Chicago Red shifts his focus from street hustler back to entertainer. In need of a catchy stage name, he combines his Harlem nickname with the last name of baseball legend Jimmy Fox and introduces the world to Red Fox. He gets his first shot at comedy in Baltimore when he's hired as an MC at Gamby's, a club on the Chitlin circuit. I discovered that I had a natural affinity for off-the-cuff jokes and rapid-fire comebacks when defending myself against hecklers. But Red still has ambitions in music and scores a contract with Savoy Records in 1946. Comedy historian Cliff Nesteroff. By the time Red Fox starts recording music on Savoy Records, Harlem is, you know, shorthand all across America. Savoy Records signifies that this is going to be some quality black music via Harlem. And so the fact that Red Fox is signed to the same label that a lot of famous jazz artists are also on is significant. In October 1946, Fox releases five singles on the label, including the song, Let's Wiggle a Little Woogie. Let's wiggle a little woogie. Just a little bit of woogie. However, it did not make him famous. It's just like today, you know, you do a YouTube video, it could go viral or it could be completely ignored. And so the early Red Fox essentially was completely ignored. They didn't chart, they didn't become hit records, they weren't really written up in Billboard or Cashbox or Downbeat Magazine, any of the periodicals that chronicled the music industry. But it was just another stepping stone in the evolution of a performer. His music career isn't taking off, but things are looking up in Red's personal life. In 1947, he meets Evelyn Killebrew. They get married and move in with her father in Newark, New Jersey. But Red feels trapped by domestic life and falls back on his criminal ways. He and Evelyn start growing marijuana in her father's backyard. Red was actually busted once driving into either in and out of Jersey. He got pulled over and spent a couple days in jail for having marijuana in the trunk. 
His marriage already starting to crumble, Red spends most of his time in Harlem, where he meets entertainer Slappy White. They join forces and create a new act called Fox and White, crafting themselves as a black version of comedy duel Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. They would do comedy. There would probably be a dance team or a juggler on the bill. Dinah Washington and her orchestra would perform. They land gigs on the Chitlin circuit and even perform at the Apollo Theater. Author and filmmaker Nelson George. The Chitlin circuit was a network of theaters and nightclubs, really going back to post-war America, all the way into probably into the 90s, maybe even farther in, of nightclubs venues that catered to black audiences. They were these clubs that catered to black working class people. They were the backbone of entertainment for black folks. Life on the Road finishes off Red's marriage. He and Evelyn divorce in 1952. That same year, Fox and White get their first big break when jazz singer Dinah Washington invites them to open for her at Sebastian's Comedy Club in Los Angeles. She offers them $1,000 a week, more than twice what they were getting paid before. Flush with cash for once in their lives, Red and Slappy buy a used car and head west to make it big in Hollywood. But things don't turn out as planned. California was a drag. We were expecting a more liberal attitude in Los Angeles and were put off by the city's overt racism and its segregation policies. It's no better than what we had experienced back east. I was down there in Orange County. A guy walked up in the club where I was working and said, Hey, boy, come here. I said, Boy, hell, you must have caught me in swimming when it was cold. I ain't no damn boy. (laughs) He looked at me and said, You know, I like colored people. I said, Well, that's weird. Me too. (laughs) He said, A colored mammy raised me. I said, And one raised me. He said, I nursed a colored mammy's breast. I said, well, you lucky I didn't get to a white one until I was 22. <laughs> Slappy heads back east, but Red refuses to give up. At age 29, he gets a job washing dishes at Club Alabama on L.A.'s Central Avenue, the hub of West Coast jazz. But he doesn't stay in the kitchen long. Once management realized they had the funniest dishwasher on earth in their midst, they moved me to the main room as a stand-up act. From there, Red gets hired as an assistant to popular DJ Johnny Otis at K-Fox in Long Beach. And now the star of our show, the king of rock and roll, Johnny Otis. That job lands Red a stand-up gig at the Oasis Club which leads to more attention from the right people, namely Dootsie Williams. Williams's record label, Do Two Records, is considered L.A.'s own Motown, best known for the 1954 hit Earth Angel. Dootsie had the idea to take a tape recorder. I believe he paid Red $25 to tape record Red's act at a club in L.A., and that became Laugh of the Party, which was Red's first album with Dutone Records, and it took off. It's the first time ever a comedian records an album in front of a live audience. He was the first comedian to truly record his stand-up act from the nightclub stage. You hear the audible response of the audience. This was brand new. This was an absolute first. The Laugh of the Party Volume 1 comes out in 1956, and it's dirty right out the gate. Preacher's wife had the biggest ass in town. I know because I rode her big ass all the time. (laughs) Biggest ass ever been on. You can see the muscles in her big ass. <laughs> Sometime I ride her ass so long, I ask for sweat, and I slip right off her big sweater ass. Tina Andrews played Red's niece on Sanford and Son. He was very funny and very, very racy. Very, it was very blue humor. You, I mean, you know, you only, <laughs> you only heard stuff like that like at the barbershop. shop. <laughs> 
or in the streets in the alley. It was shocking, frankly, to have it actually recorded for like ever, because we all had that Uncle Joe or your best friend who talked like that. But for it to be memorialized in that way on record was unbelievable. And you would laugh at the same jokes, you know, over and over. Former Motown executive Miller London. He was in his day what Richard Pryor was in his day and you know, what Eddie Murphy was in his day. He would say what he wanted to say, how he wanted to say it, and it was funny, and he made it funny. Red's debut album is so popular, it earns him the name King of the Party Records. Comedian and actor Dion Cole. Red Fox was the king of the party records because he was raw. Like, to hear that at a party, man, everybody sit around and listen to it. He was like that raunchy... They was funny, but they also, in, in an odd way, set the mood for you to get down, too. This is actor and stand-up comedian Rolanda Watts. Red Fox was one of those guys that if you were into comedy and you were into your folks coming over, just having drinks and listening to some fun stuff after the kids went to bed, Red Fox was on your list. He was one of the LP giants, and that was quite extraordinary. There was something to it that was just a little left of center. It was a little dangerous. It was almost like being a drug dealer. You know you're not necessarily <laughs> supposed to be doing that, and you're certainly not supposed to buy it, but drugs were sold. Well, these blue albums just would fly off the shelves. Red puts out two more follow-up albums in 1956. And so they quickly put out another one, Laugh of the Party, Volume 2. Laugh of the Party, Volume 3, Volume 4, Volume 5. They all had the exact same cover, but they had different material on each. It's not time now for me to pause to mention my sponsor. You know, I appeared here this morning through the courtesy of Flush O. F-L-U-S-H dash O. It's a new cough syrup. <laughs> and uh, Flush O acts as nature's own herbs would act as a laxative. Won't do nothing for a cold, but you better not cough. <laughs> Sneeze either. The Laugh of the Party collection sells over a million copies. Motown record executive Miller London. The real numbers were much larger than what they're reporting because those were the kinds of albums that people wanted in their collection. So you had some people that bought that three, four, maybe five times, which still went to the bottom line. It was a sale. So when you think of what they were up against in order to sell those kinds of numbers, it was really a feat. A few years later, comedy records became a big trend, but Red Fox was the guy who started the whole thing. Even with his prolific recording career, Red still finds time for romance. He meets Betty Jean Harris, a singer at the Oasis Club in Las Vegas. He marries her one week later and also adopts her daughter, Debraca, from a previous marriage. I've always had a soft spot for children, and now that Jeannie and I were settled, Debraca came to live with us in Los Angeles. I soon agreed to adopt Debraca, and we legally changed the name to Fox. Red's records have made him an underground sensation, but he's yet to crack the mainstream, so he keeps hustling releasing a whopping 17 records between 1957 and 1961. Way to go, Red. One question in the questionnaire was, when will you be able to go to work? And the fellow was sitting next to me filling out his questionnaire. He hunched me, say, hey, uh, I spell rat. I said, R-A-T, rat. He said, no, 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 I, I, I don't mean that mousy kind of rat. I mean rat now. <laughs> In 1963, Red gets his foot in a door he's been knocking on for years when he performs at the Castaways in Las Vegas. It's not one of the big hotels on the Strip, but the king of party records is a good fit in Sin City. He's getting better pay, more exposure, and playing to bigger audiences. Nothing thrills me more than to hear hands clapping. Man, I'd get out of bed to do a show knowing that the applause is still going to be there. I like to know that I've made people happy, and telling jokes is one way to do that. The Vegas gig leads to a raise and a run at San Francisco's Sugar Hill Club. 
Actually, I don't like to talk about the races because I'm white and... Uh, <laughs> I am. This is a freckle. One night, Hugh Downs comes to see a show. So Hugh Downs is the co-host of The Today Show, and he's familiar with comedians because he had been the sidekick on The Tonight Show. Hugh Downs talked to his producers at The Today Show. He said, listen, he's a smart guy. He's not going to come on and do his blue material, which is not even that blue anymore if you think about it. But he knows it's a morning show audience. And Red came on and they just chatted about, you know, nothing in particular, just funny everyday things. And that really opened the door. It does seem like a weird booking that Red Fox's television debut would be at 7 in the morning. Because here's a guy who's got a reputation for talking about sex, for smoking, for drinking. He's like a late night act. And not just like 8 p.m., but like a midnight act, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, Red Fox. Red starts making regular appearances on The John Barber Show, a local L.A. talk show with a big audience. On one appearance, Red shows up dressed in knickers. What are those you have on, Red? I think uh, I was down south. I got these down south. I was in Mississippi for two days. And everybody kept saying knickers. Knickers, so I bought me a pair. <laughs> Red's career is on a roll, but that coveted late-night TV appearance still eludes him. His contemporaries like Dick Gregory and Bill Cosby, who have cleaner acts, have already broken the late-night color barrier. At that time, it was really Johnny Carson who was dominating everything. And a lot of Carson's appeal, well, he was from Nebraska, was, quote unquote, that middle American, safe, bland appeal. Even white comedians like George Carlin, who were breaking ground at that time, were having trouble getting on. So I don't think Red was going to make it then until he, quote-unquote, proved himself. That time finally comes in 1964. Through a connection at the Apollo, Red lands the brass ring of comedy, a spot on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. But you ever think about that after you're gone? Like sure, most people I do. want to leave my old lady something so she can be comfortable with whoever she's with. <laughs> I've done that and I'm not gone. and professor of black popular culture at Duke University, Mark Anthony Neal. Any performer, black performer, who had the opportunity to get on The Tonight Show or Ed Sullivan, it had a tremendous impact on their career, right? For some of them, it allowed them to skyrocket, if you will, to the mainstream. For other folks, it just allowed them a kind of visibility that would keep them working, really, for the rest of their careers, right? And I think that's the case with Red Fox. Red's future is looking brighter than ever until he gets the news that his brother Fred has died from kidney disease and diabetes at the age of 46. He died destitute in Cook County Hospital in our mother's arms. He left behind no wife or children. I make a point to perform for free at jails and prisons around the country to honor Fred's memory. Red won't let his grief slow him down. Instead, he uses it to push himself even harder. And in 1966, he lands a headline spot at the Aladdin Hotel on the Vegas Strip. My dad used to drink a lot, I want to mention that then. Uh, I remember his breath well. <laughs> he used to come home and tuck us kids into bed and breathe on us and put us to sleep. Red Fox is now playing white nightclubs and people like Godfrey Cambridge and Flip Wilson would follow in Red Fox's footsteps. So there was a continuity. The success of each black comedian in every field paves the way for the next black comedian, and not even necessarily younger comedians. Sometimes it was comedians that were twice as old but had never gotten the shot. In his early 40s, Red gets another big break. Frank Sinatra drops in to see one of his shows and decides he wants him on his record label. And even though Red's under contract, what Frank Sinatra wants, Frank Sinatra gets. Frank Sinatra changed my whole recording scene. 
He saw me performing one time and he actually rolled on the floor laughing. He said, I want to sign you up. I told him I was all tied up, but he said, don't you worry, I'll take care of it. I don't know what happened, but somehow or other, a couple days later, I was free. Sinatra loves Red's risque humor and lets him fly. And in December of 1966, Red releases his first album under Sinatra's label. The Both Sides of Red Fox. But don't kill yourself, white friends, please. <laughs> Stop that foolishness. In San Francisco, over 150 people have died off the bridge. Three Negroes, and two of them were pushed. The album sells 15,000 copies. The first month is out. This was the new evolution of Red Fox. He had started out doing those party records for Duto Records. Now he's on a mainstream label run by Frank Sinatra. Can't get much more mainstream than that with a recording contract. With a taste of mainstream success, Red decides to invest in himself and buys his own comedy club in Beverly Hills in 1967. It's called simply Red Fox. I wanted a place where I could get up on stage and do my stand-up when I wanted to, with no languages or content restrictions. Red makes sure to give young black comics their chance on his stage, like Richard Pryor and Flip Wilson. Red Fox became the first black business owner in Beverly Hills. It was sort of a fascinating purchase that he bought this nightclub because its previous iteration, it had been known as the Slate Brothers Club. It was a very popular comedy club in Los Angeles and Richard Pryor got his start there. And it was a very small club it sat about 100 to 150 people, very narrow, which I think was part of the appeal. Not only is Red now a business owner, he is also appearing regularly on big network shows like Dick Cavett, David Frost, and The Joey Bishop Show. Again, Sanford and Son actress Tina Andrews. He was able to reach out beyond his Black audience, which was significant, and he sort of cultivated a huge white audience. And he was able to do that by making sure that his content was such that it was universal. But while Red's popularity is on the rise, his club is sinking. Red Fox was notoriously bad with money. He wasn't good at accounting. He wasn't good at paying taxes. So by 1969, it looked like he was going to lose the nightclub. And he talks about the troubles he's having with his club and he breaks down in tears on television. So later that week, the club is packed with people and the club is saved. Of course, again, over the course of the next year and a half, it kind of folded again. Bill Cosby swooped in because he was good at business and he tried to fix all the accounting, but eventually the club folded. It's all I got in the world right now, but give me a chance, please, man. Red may have lost his club, but in 1970, his career takes an upward turn when he's cast in the film Cotton Comes to Harlem, directed by Ozzie Davis. Comedian D.L. Hughley. He transitioned his career because it went from just being able to hear him, which was audio. You got to see and hear the guy. You got to put the face with the voice. And the Dirty Comedian scores an NAACP award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture. If you're Black, you want one of those. And so for Red Fox, that is a big deal. High on his own success, Red heads back to Vegas and does what he loves most, stand-up. Then he gets a call that changes his life. It's about a possible role on a brand new TV show. It's based on a British sitcom called Steptoe and Son, and it's being developed by Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin. Lear and Yorkin's smash CBS show All in the Family has just won the 1971 Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series. In this 1997 interview, Bud Yorkin talks about pitching to CBS executive Fred Silverman and encountering the walls of prejudice that still stood tall in Hollywood. They made one mistake. We took him Sanford and Son, that we want to do a, a black show. And Fred said, I don't want to do a black show. He said, you know, there'd been one on or two on, it failed. With CBS passing, Lear and Yorkin head across the street to NBC. 
NBC is interested. But like CBS, they're nervous about doing a black show. They push for an Irish or an Italian actor for the lead. But the producers already know who they want. I saw Cotton Comes to Harlem, and I see this guy, Red Fox. I said, gee, Red Fox, maybe he can do it. Norman Lear says Red was always the perfect choice to play Fred Sanford. Well, Red Fox, there were only a handful of comedians I've ever met who were funny themselves, not just when they got on the stage. He was a funny man, offstage, just somebody to talk to, you, you know, unforgettably funny. But the role is far from a sure thing. Red still has to win over the network brass. So I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. I said, I'm going to rehearse you for a week. We're going to do this show. I don't guarantee you anything. If the show comes off, we'll do it for NBC. And you got a job. If it doesn't, you've wasted a week. Since All in the Family is in production, the rehearsal takes place on the CBS lot with rival NBC executives and CBS's All in the Family cast and writers all watching together. You hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. It was bedlam. They tore the place up. I didn't have to sell it. It's the greatest show I've ever I've never laughed. It's the funniest thing. All Herb had to say was, you got it. Put them on. So that's the story of Sanford. NBC orders 13 episodes, and Sanford and Son is born. Red's character Fred Sanford is named in tribute to his late brother, and he quickly becomes an iconic TV character. He became instant. That show hit right away. That was like number three instant success, and he is now a star. That was phenomenal at a time where the competition was so fierce because we only had three networks. Damon Wilson plays Fred's son Lamont and says the show helped change the TV game. We changed the paradigm in television. Norman Lear and Buddy Yorkin started that ball when they did All in the Family. That was the beginning of the new regime taking over. Red finds himself on the cover of the Black Bible itself, Jet Magazine, and gets a spread in the New York Times. He's officially a superstar. He starts making huge demands and earns a reputation as someone tough to work with. I don't know what to say other than that he was difficult, (laughs) but hilarious. So you had a good time disagreeing with him about what was funny from time to time. To answer your question about Red being difficult, no, Johnny Carson wasn't difficult. Dean Martin wasn't difficult. They never wanted black men to rise up to that level where they could command a salary. Red was 50 years old, and he demanded what white artists demanded. Red's making $7,500 a week, but he feels like he deserves more. And we're about seven shows in, and uh, I say, what's what's the problem, Red? He said, I, I don't think I can do the show. I got something wrong. Dr. Sith, if I'm making $15,000 a week, he said, oh, I wouldn't have to worry about eating the way I do. I wouldn't have these ulcers. So I said, well, I guess we've got to cancel the show. I walk out, and it takes me eight more weeks to get him to come back to work. But the network kept caving. Every time he walked, they'd cave. He started the trend for stars in television, saying, I'm not going to show up unless I get more money. Hello, everybody. For outstanding continued performance by an actor in a leading role in a comedy series, the nominees are... Red Fox, Stanford and Son. Luckily, the -the behind-the-scenes drama doesn't affect the on-screen comedy. In 1972, Red is nominated for an Emmy, Best Lead Actor in a Comedy Series. He loses to All in the Family's Carol O'Connor, but it's still a huge moment for Red and the black culture. Getting an Emmy nomination for Red Fox, first of all, was validation by the country. It's validation from your peers. It's the highest honor you could get as a television star. From 1972 to 1973, 
Sanford and Son is the second most watched show in the country, coming in right behind All in the Family. It really was just basically a sitcom about the love between a father and his son. When you boil it all down, and I think that's really what resonated with people, whatever color they were. Actor and comedian Rolanda Watts. This was the show that killed the Brady Bunch. And I think it had a lot to do with the people you invite in your home. And they don't always look like you. Sanford had an Asian friend. He had a Latino friend. And they quipped with each other about their cultures. I think those are ways that you can bring a nation together, too. Red's career is red hot. In September of 1972, he's on the cover of Time magazine with Carol O'Connor and Maud star B. Arthur. The cover reads, The new TV season, toppling old taboos. Filmmaker and journalist Nelson George says Red's career path was unparalleled. Red Fox is the biggest crossover star to come out of the black chitlin circuit world comedy. It's hard to think of anybody aside from Pryor who made more of a dent in mainstream America coming out of the segregated comedy world than Red Fox. In January of 1973, Red wins the Golden Globe for Best TV Actor in a Comedy or Musical making him the third black entertainer to take home the award after Flip Wilson and Bill Cosby. But beyond the awards and even beyond the laughs, Sanford and Son is tackling important social issues. It was certainly our intent to reflect the culture as we knew it to exist. So if you're dealing with a black actor and his life, you have to deal with his neighborhood and his culture if you are dealing with it openly and honestly, and we tried to do that. To bring the flavor that reflects his world to the small screen, Red reaches out to childhood friend LaWanda Page and his old stage partner, Slappy White. Red Fox was one of those people who was not going to leave anyone behind. Anyone who had been in his life, who had been on the comic circuit, he brought with him because there was such a need for other artists similar to him. Hal Williams played Officer Smitty Smith on the show. He put as many characters into that show that were friends of his that he used to work with, whether it was Bubba, whether it was Aunt Esther, all those people he performed with. Insisting the show be as real as possible, Red pushes NBC to hire black writers and directors. It's not an easy sell, but the network finally agrees to bring on up-and-coming comedians Richard Pryor and Paul Mooney as writers in season two. They wanted things to be correct, and the more people of color that he got there, the more ammunition he had to prove that he was right. Red was certainly there, if not ahead of us, wishing black writers, producers, etc., on the show. But we were not far behind at all. We thought it extremely important. Macrofilm Studios president, James Lopez. My personal friend, Stan Lathan, got his first network directing shot because of Red's demands. They were scrambling trying to find black directors anywhere, and they'd heard about Stan doing PBS television in New York City. And they flew Stan to L.A., and Stan's first network directing gig was on Sampras. One of Red's demands is that the show represents the language of the black community. The time they really got scared was when Red wanted to use the N-word in the show. And they said, oh, no, you can't do that. It Red. Producer Bud Yorkin. He said, let me do that stuff. I want to be able to say that. And I said, uh, well, you know, I don't feel comfortable with it, but if you, you feel hey, I can do it, you can't do it. I don't want somebody else doing it, but I can do it. So I said, well, okay, Red, you know, and he did it. The controversial episode is written by Paul Mooney, a comedian who always pushed the envelope. Proceed. Now, here's the question. What have you got against black drivers? <laughs> Fred and Lamont go to court when Lamont is charged with a traffic violation. I will not tolerate these outbursts. And you will restrict your inquiry to the matter before the court. Well, that's what's, that's what's wrong with the court, Judge. A black man ain't got a chance down here. I'm black. Well, you the judge. That don't count. 
Listen, why don't you arrest some white drivers? I do. You do? Well, where are they? Look at all these niggas in here. Look around here. There's enough niggas in here to make a Tarzan movie. They were scared to death when he did it. And so was the country. Because nobody was sure how it was going to be taken. But he was the only one brave enough and with enough power to do it at that time. We got past the censors because we were number one, because it was not out of the line of the character, because the paradigm had changed. You couldn't do that in television now. By now, Red is reportedly making $10,000 an episode, and he's pulling in even more with his stand-up gigs and album sales. And he's not afraid to put his wealth on full display. He's living large in multiple homes, wearing expensive jewelry, and driving a fleet of cars, including a Rolls Royce. He did live his life to the fullest. He had homes in a lot of places. He did perform in in Las Vegas quite a bit. He had a home there. And the home that he had up in the Hollywood Hills, the whole bedroom was a walk-in closet. Sometimes he would only wear a suit one time, and he would have spent $15,000 for it because of the fabric. He lived his life his way. But Red doesn't just spend his money on himself. He's known for being very generous, always willing to help a friend in need. But sometimes to a fault. I didn't have a uh, major personal relationship with him. I did know enough about his life and what was happening through the years we were in production and was always sad and sorry to hear that there were a number of his buddies that were taking big advantage of him. Red has money, fame, and one of the biggest hits on TV, but he still feels undervalued at NBC and continues to make it known. Red made sure that he himself was treated at the level of other stars in the business who were headlining their shows. There were no windows in the dressing rooms, and he wanted a dressing room with a window. And we talked to him about the inability to break through the wall and put a window in this, you know, NBC. They were not going to allow that. People got the wrong impression by doing all this was about a, a dressing room and all this other stuff. Red was pissed off because Johnny Carson had a whole floor at the studio with his assistants and, and the receptionists and gophers and runners and all that. Red had a little office like a closet. Red's also angry that All in the Family star Carol O'Connor is reportedly making three times more than him over at CBS. They wasn't going to pay Red what Carol O'Connor was getting. This was the 70s. White people were not accustomed to black men in those days standing up for themselves and demanding something from them. They were accustomed to having compliant blacks that said, okay, boss, I'm just happy to be on television. (laughs) When contract negotiations come up for season three, Red doesn't hold back. Again, he claims to be sick and refuses to work. He would intermittently go on strike and he would just vanish. He'd be supposed to be on set for Sanford and Son and nobody could find him. He'd go to Mexico or something. And there's episodes of Sanford and Son that Red Fox isn't even in. And they had to like explain it in the script. Oh, he's, he's away visiting somebody and it would start Grady instead of Sanford. So all of that was swirling around. I didn't want to revert back to Amos and Andy. I was treated like a boy and not a man. The atmosphere on Sanford and Son set is like the army. You have to salute almost. Nobody misses a show like I do. I wanted right for me once, and for one guy that follows me so we won't have to kick down too many doors to make it right for him. After five months of heated negotiations and no-shows, some of Red's demands are finally met. He gets a raise to $25,000 an episode, plus 25% of net profits, and a window in his dressing room. So they moved us. We had two big suites upstairs on the third floor overlooking the car lot. But that was their answer to giving him more space, you know. Why can't a black man get a piece of a show? You know what I was? A tuxedo slave. 
They sent a limousine for me and patted me on the hair and goosed me at parties and expected me to be a happy black buck. I should have my own NBC variety special as a thank you. I'd be happy with the occasional chance to host the Tonight Show in Johnny's absence, but that offer hasn't come. Despite all the money flowing in, Red still manages to create financial problems for himself. Again, biographer Michael Seth Starr. He wasn't paying taxes on it and he wasn't saving it. And he had a cocaine habit. He used to snort coke at the table readings for Sanford and Son. It was an open secret. So a lot of drug money, bad investments, or, or just giving money to people. A drug habit, money issues, and conflicts with the network aren't Red's only problems. In 1975, his marriage to Betty Jean falls apart, and the divorce is contentious. He was cheating a lot on her, and I think she just got tired of the infidelity after a while. He did sleep with a lot of staffers and writers and women in Vegas and outside of his marriage. But Red doesn't waste any time getting him back in the saddle. The next year, he meets Joy Young Chi Chung, a Vegas cocktail waitress, who becomes his third wife. Actress Tina Andrews, who also dated Red, said he knew how to woo a woman. Red Fox was the type of man who was, frankly, was a hopeless romantic. He loved making sure that you went to the best places for manicures and, and pedicures. He loved sending perfume to you, loved sending flowers. I mean, it got to be at one point I said, people are thinking it's a funeral in here, Red. Do not send any more, do not send any more flowers to my house. In his sixth season, Sanford and Son is still a major hit. But Red continues to make major demands in his contract negotiations. And this time, when those demands aren't met, he leaves the show, blindsiding his castmates. That show was not canceled. Red left. I heard a lot of people that were on the show say, we don't understand why he would walk away from a hit show. Nobody does that. It's stupid. He hurt a lot of people. I felt betrayed when Red Fox left and didn't say anything to me about it. I found out through the trade papers, and that was a blow. It hurt. Because we had a thing where he'd come to me and say, this is what I'm going to do. He didn't do that. He walked. Sanford and Son leaves an indelible mark on television history. It's the precursor to many black sitcoms that follow, like Good Times, The Jeffersons, and The Cosby Show, and later, The Bernie Mac Show, Everybody Hates Chris, and Blackish. Editor in chief of the digital magazine, Ambassador Musa Jackson. Red Fox opened the door for every black comedian on TV. He was so authentic. He brought the poorest black person onto the screen and made him a king, made him a hero. Anywhere, anywhere you wanted to pivot, at that point, you could pivot. You could have a Jefferson. You could certainly have a good times. So if you were Bill Cosby and playing a doctor, right? You already saw the poorest guy. Martin Lawrence, who was your homeboy from across the way. You already saw Red Fox. Red makes a number of attempts to return to primetime, including a variety show on ABC and a 1980 NBC spinoff called Sanford. But none of those efforts are successful. What happens to people when they get famous? They say, okay, I'm the one that made this famous. I can go anywhere now and replicate my success in whatever I do. And that's not true. The show is a phenomenon. It was the right chemistry, the right time, the right producers. You can't make magic all the time like that. It doesn't happen. He couldn't find the right vehicle for himself, but in a way didn't need it. He was successful enough to be able to continue to perform in Las Vegas. And as he said, I can roll out of bed and make a million dollars a night. And there was no exaggeration. But by 1983, Red's big spending lifestyle outpaces his income. He has no choice but to file for bankruptcy. And his love life takes another hit when his third wife, Joy, files for divorce after two years of marriage. 
She sues for $5 million plus $20,000 a month in alimony. Red countersues, citing incompatibility. His career also hits a roadblock. Here he is talking to Tom Joyner in 1983. Are you making any plans to do any more television shows? Or are you through with television now? No, I think television through with me. I've been away from television two or three years and no one's called me to do anything. I guess they think that I'm just Fred Sanford and so if they don't have a part for Fred, there's nothing else left, so Fred is dead. Fred may be dead, but Red takes another shot at primetime with the Red Fox show on ABC. It fails to find an audience. He's getting older, and show business often rejects older people in favor of the new young flavor of the month. So somebody like Eddie Murphy comes along, who loved Red Fox and was inspired by Red Fox, and Richard Pryor, who follows in Red Fox's footsteps, they're sort of doing laps around him. Author, poet, and human rights activist Kevin Powell. I think it's it's really bogus that Red Fox was discriminated against because he was older. I think it was because he was older and he was black because some of his contemporaries like Bob Hope, Bob Newhart, older white comedians, they kept getting work literally up until they died. Red Fox challenged a lot of stuff around Hollywood. And I think that was something that he paid a price for as well. In 1989, Red's refusal to pay taxes catches up with him. The IRS seizes his assets, including his Vegas home and seven cars. They put liens on his property, totaling almost 800 grand. He's left with virtually nothing. Red Fox was certainly a rebel, and his non-payment of taxes was not merely because he was bad with money, but he felt that once he became wealthy, he had earned that money through the hard knocks of bigotry and racism and suppression, and why the fuck would he give his money to those same bigots? It was a big fuck you. Red meets someone who sticks by him even when, as he says, he only has a nickel. In 1991, he marries for the fourth time to Kaho Cho, whom he meets at the Ballet's Hotel and Casino in Vegas. The same year, he gets another chance at network TV with the part on the CBS show, The Royal Family. This time, Red isn't the star, but part of an ensemble cast. He plays a mailman opposite Della Reese as his wife. He wasn't the same man. He was older now. He knew that he couldn't screw up again because this was really his last shot at television. There were just too many misses before this. Comedian D.L. Hughley worked on The Royal Family punching up scripts and doing audience warm-up. They had a great cast, but it was more of an ensemble with a strong lead, and I think that that was an adjustment he never really rectified, reconciled within itself. Given Red's reputation as being difficult, the network makes sure to keep tabs on him. Red had, quote-unquote, a minder on the set to keep him in line, make sure that he showed up on time, that he was filming his scenes like he was supposed to be doing. On October 11th, 1991, Red is rehearsing a scene on a soundstage when he suddenly collapses. In this 2011 interview, Della Reese talks about how onset tension between Red and one of the show's producers led to that fateful moment. He was always trying to tell Red how to be funny. Red was saying, you don't don't even know funny, so you can't tell me something you don't even know. And that was the undercurrent all the time. This particular day, uh, Entertainment Tonight came to interview Red. And so we're rehearsing a scene, and all Red had to do was walk across the back of my chair. And this man says, where is Red? And I said, he's having an interview with Entertainment Tonight. I said, but he doesn't have any lines here. So he goes in there, stops their shooting, and brings Red out. And when Red gets out there and finds out all he has to do is walk across the back of this that anybody could have done, he becomes livid and he falls. And I thought, because he would always say, I'm coming to join you, Elizabeth, I'm coming to, like, all that thing. I thought 
that he was doing that. I thought it was him hamming it up or him playing around. And it was a few minutes or so, and then I could hear the urgency in everybody's voice. He said, get my wife, get my wife, get my wife, get my I said, somebody get paramedics and somebody go get Mrs. Fox. And then I remember the paramedics coming. And I remember Della Reese telling me, you killed him, you killed him, saying that to the executive producer. Red is rushed to the hospital, but it's too late. He passes away at the age of 68. They never did treat him with the respect that he should have had. He should have had a, a right out of the show. Like he didn't get an accident or didn't get sick or something. Just one day he was there and one day he wasn't. He died with gigs on the books. He died on stage. He died on top. He died, I believe, the way any performer would want to. He died defiantly being him, in his elements, on a soundstage. All I could think in my head was Sammy Davis Jr. my way. After years of tax troubles and bad business decisions, Red dies millions of dollars in debt. And when Red passed away, there was the inevitable battle over the estate. Although in this case, the estate was bankrupt. I mean, there was really nothing there. Here he is famous, but then he's broke and he dies broke. And that's the tragedy, going from riches to rags. That's sad because he was such a gift to us as a comedian. Fifteen years after Red's death, Time magazine named Sanford and Son one of the top 100 TV shows of all time. Sanford and Son is just blessed to have been one of those iconic shows. And you can watch them over and over again. Man, what a great show that was. I remember Chris Rock talking about the Chris Rock show. He loved working on the show because he got a chance to work with his friends. And I think that's the same thing with Red. I think Red truly enjoyed working with his friends. But I think he still also wanted to get respect from the networks, respect from his peers. And I think in some way, shape, or form, he achieved that. I think he achieved everything he set out to do. Red Fox's legacy is his albums and his rawness. And the rawness that everybody got right now comes from him. I don't care who you are. I don't care what comic you are. And hell, you ain't even got to be a comic. Just your rawness in period. And that's his legacy. And it'll always live on, especially through comedians. They got to know that. They got to be able to honor that, too, and know that, keep his name alive, and know that he's the guy that did that. I think he made me believe that being Black was possible and acceptable. Just a comedy giant was acceptable and attainable. Red Fox just seemed like us. He seemed like who we were, who we are and where we're going all at the same time. He seemed so present to me. And I think that you can see him embodied in a lot of young comedians, a lot of older comedians. You can just see his style through and through, that kind of indelible tribute to blackness. What is Red Fox's legacy? Well, I mean, he was good for the world. I believe that laughter adds time to our lives. I watched him in front of several hundred people in Las Vegas numerous times and watched people roaring at tables, you know, three, four hundred people, laughing at the same moment, watching an audience come out of their chair with a guffaw and go forward and come back. As spiritual as any movement I can think of, and deeply funny. And there is a peace in the room unlike none other when people are roaring with laughter as one. And Red Fox was responsible for as much of that as any other performer I've ever known. So he was good for our world. 
you made it and you were successful and you shared it with all the people you worked with on the way up. That's really nice. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Well, I heard an expression, you know, it said if you're nice to people on the way up, it'll be easier coming down. And I tell them if you're nice going up and stay that way, you don't have to come down. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. We'll be right back with Red Fox. My Way has been an Audible original produced by Team Coco and AYR Media, hosted by me, J.B. Smooth. Executive produced by Matt Powers, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Willie Navarre for Team Coco, Aliza Rosen for AYR Media, and Tony Junkins. Producer for AYR Media, George Alexander. Producer for Team Coco, April Lamb. Written by George Alexander and Tim Huddleston. Development Coordinator for Team Coco, Emily Prill. Senior Associate Producer for AYR Media, Eric Newman. Associate Producers for AYR Media, Miriam Debbie Talbot and Nina Bradley. Edited by Kenny Kuziak and George Drabeen Hicks. Sound mixed by Kenny Kuziak and George Drabeen Hicks. And KT People and Jackie Zoe of 1,000 Birds. Audio engineering by Kenny Kuziak, George Drabing Hicks, and Elliot Herman. Studio engineering by Matt Jacobson. Additional sound engineering by Robin Krupka. Celebrity interview booking, Blythe Asher. Additional fact-checking by Terry J. Davis. Additional research by Zoe McCarthy. Business Affairs and Legal Counsel for Team Coco, David Melmet. Executive Producer for Audible, Joshua Poole. Acquisition and Development for Audible, Zach Ross. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. For the use of materials essential to the production of this podcast, the producers would like to thank 800-pound Gorilla Media and Clown Jewels. Amazon Studios. Ball State University Libraries, Archives, and Special Collection. Barrett Dungey and Urban Home Entertainment Distribution. Bill Stephanie and Stepson Music for the use of selections from Paul Mooney's albums Race and Masterpiece. Carson Entertainment Group for selections from The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. CMG Worldwide. Donald Randell. ICM Partners, The Merv Griffin Show, licensed courtesy of Reeling in the Years Productions, JohnBarbersWorld.com. The Kennedy Center Millennium Stage for footage of A Night with Jackie Moms Mabley. Netflix for selections from the trailer of Dolomite Is My Name. Penguin Random House for the use of selections from Flip by Kevin Cook. The unabridged audio recording of Flip is published by Blackstone Publishing, available for purchase wherever audiobooks are sold. PBS. Jim Varagona and Emmett McAuliffe, Esquire, for selections from Worldwide Magazine. Roman and Littlefield for excerpts from Black and Blue, The Red Fox Story, by Michael Seth Starr, published by Applause. Real Black, Reeling in the Years Productions, Retro Video Inc. and Paul Brownstein Productions for selections from The Flip Wilson Show and The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Smithsonian Folkways Recordings for selections from Dick Gregory, Mr. Mega Evers from the recording entitled The Story of Greenwood, Mississippi. Sofa Entertainment, for the Ed Sullivan Show. Sony Pictures Television for the use of selections from Sanford and Son, Steve Housden, and Xenon Pictures. The Television Academy, GBH Archives, Vincent Taylor and Laval Records, AP Archives Press Association, Ebony Media Group, LLC. The Estate of Richard C. Gregory. Dick Gregory Enterprises, Inc. and Robert Lipsight for excerpts from Nigger, an autobiography by Dick Gregory and Robert Lipsight. MGM Media Licensing, 
for selections from Amazing Grace and Cotton Comes to Harlem. NPR's News and Notes. Bud Yorkin, Della Reese, and RuPaul Charles Interviews. Courtesy of the Television Academy Foundation Interviews. See full interviews at televisionacademy.com backslash interviews. Universal Media Inc. For selections from the Jack Parr Program. Voice acting performed by Jared Mingia, Stephen Van Patten, George Raymond Watson, and Damon Webb. Excerpts from Paul Mooney's memoir, Black is the New White, read by Godfrey. The producers would also like to thank the following people for their assistance with the production of this podcast. Rachel Whitley Bernstein, Kyle Chappell, Miles Groves, Spring Gladney, Christian Gregory, Billy Mitchell, Kurt Hernan, Warrington Hutland, Ed Schmidt, and Cassandra Williams. Copyright 2022 by Corner Verticals, LLC, and AYR Media. Sound recording copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC.